thank you very much for that. Thank you for the first part of the of the meeting today. It's been great. I I didn't take part in that quiz, and I'm quite glad I didn't because I may have come last, and that wouldn't have been an awful lot of fun. But I I've been given a topic today, and the topic is entitled "Why Are We God's Chosen People?" Now, that's an interesting topic. I could actually answer the question by saying I haven't a clue. And nobody could say I've given the wrong answer because there is a sense in which we will never know why God has chosen us and not our neighbor, why he's chosen us and not somebody else who he doesn't appear to have chosen. So part of the answer is we don't know, but I know you wouldn't be satisfied with that. When we talk about God's chosen people or when the Bible talks about God's chosen people, it's normally referring to two kinds of people. There's God's chosen people in the Old Testament is definitely the nation of Israel. And they are even referred to God as God's chosen people in the New Testament. And they still remain God's chosen people. But as the verse from 1 Peter says so rightly, the New Testament writers, Peter, Paul as well, refer to every Christian as being part of God's chosen people as well. So we are indeed chosen people. And in order to answer the question, I'm going to answer very, very quickly five, five questions. I'm trying to find a way to move this along and it doesn't seem to want to move along for some reason. My wife is helping me. There are five questions. There we go. Just who is this God who is doing the choosing? Need to know that. Why does this God have to make a choice in the first place? When does God choose his people? What happens to us when God does choose us? And what about those people whom God has apparently not choose, chosen? It's important to know who this God is who is doing the choosing. Who is this God? It's really critical we understand who, who he is. First of all, God is sovereign. He's sovereign in that he created the world and he's sovereign, he's in charge in that he preserves the world. The world is as it is today because God is in charge. There might be times when you, you feel, you get a sense that God's not in charge, but I need to share with you that the scriptures tonight very clearly God is in charge no matter what what we do and what we think and what we say every single piece of what's happening in the world today every breath that you breathe is a, a sign that God is in charge every molecule meets with another molecule somewhere in the universe there are no maverick molecules doing things they shouldn't be doing God is in complete control. Now that's part of what we understand by God who does the choosing. But God is also holy. God is holy. We don't stand in judgment of God because he is the one who sets up all of the moral standards by which we live. So we can't pass judgment and in any way say that God is unfair or unjust. He is entirely and utterly holy. Holy is the one adjective in the Bible that is used more of God than any other single adjective. It's the only adjective that's used three times in a row. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, Revelation chapter 4. No other adjective is used like that. Many things in the Bible are called holy. Holy ground, the holy Sabbath. In the temple, we have the holy place, the holy seed, the holy covenant, the holy city. God's holy word. So the word holy is so much a part of who God is. We talk about God's attributes as God's holy wrath, God's holy justice, God's holy love. 
So the word holy is fundamental to who God is. It's the single most important attribute. And that means that he is in many ways transcendent or very different to who we are. Yes, we are made in his image. That is absolutely true. But we are also totally different to him. The reading for tonight from Isaiah chapter 6, or sorry, Isaiah chapter 55, rather, verse 6. Isaiah 55, verse 6 says this, and this is now God speaking. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There are many ways in God which God is so, so, so much bigger than we are. And because that is true, because that is absolutely true, we mustn't, we mustn't think that we are always going to find perfect answers to our questions. Because God is so big, so much bigger, so much different to what we are, there will be times when we don't understand what he's doing. Any parent will tell you there are many times in the lives of their children, especially when the children are very young and you kids can live, you can remember this. There are times when you look at your parents, you say, what on earth did you do that for? That was nasty. That hurt. That wasn't good. And yet your parent was doing it for all the right reasons. But you didn't understand it because you hadn't had the life experience of your of your parents and so it is with God and it's not a good analogy in a sense because there are no good analogies when you describe God really but so often we think that God is doing this or he's doing that when he's doing something quite different he is so very very different God is sovereign God is in charge and God is absolutely holy he is absolutely just so why then does this God have to make a choice? There's a long passage of scripture I'm going to read it in just a minute, so, so don't worry about it just yet. You see, God doesn't have to choose anyone. Let's get that all that straight. But we need to see why he does and why he has. Just as we have to have a clear picture of God, we also need to have a clear picture of who we are. And it's not the time now. I don't have the time now to go into the very challenging uh, doctrine of why did sin appear in the first place? Where did it come from? Is God responsible for putting it there? We don't have time to even look at that. But we do know that we as human beings are what the theologians call totally depraved. We are absolutely in ourselves unable to do anything that God wants us to do. We are sinful. By nature, we are sinful. In our natural state, we choose sin over goodness every single time. In our natural state, we can do nothing that pleases God. And the person who gives us this information most clearly is the Apostle Paul. I don't know whether you realize this or now, but if you were to, if you were to go to study law at probably one of the most famous law schools in the world, Harvard University, and you got as far as the same year, one of your textbooks would be the book of Romans written by Paul all those thousands of years ago. The book of Romans is one of the most logically developed arguments that any lawyer could possibly develop. And therefore it's part of the texts for young lawyers are studying to, to, be, to be barristers. And he says this, listen very carefully to what Paul says. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men and of course women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So we are wicked. So what may be known about God is plain to them. 
people can see God. People know there is a God because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So the creation reveals God to people. There's no doubt about that. People look at the creation, and even atheists I know look at the creation and say, this is marvelous, it's wonderful. But they don't want to go too far because they don't want to admit this is specially, specially made. For although, sorry, yeah, so that men and women are without excuse. Yes, God makes creation available. He, he reveals himself. And so that men and women have no excuse for not recognizing him, but for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And men, men and women looked at this, and today, because this is in the past, doesn't mean this is not happening now, it's happening today. Men and women in their billions look at creation and they say, that's very nice, but they don't recognize the God who made it. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, and this is important, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. So God has made his presence perfectly clear to men and women of all stripes, of all faiths, of all of all nationalities. He says, here I am in creation. And he also further in, in Paul's writing says, I've given you a conscience. So even in your heart of hearts, you know I exist. But what do you do? You make your own gods and you reject me. And that's what happens. That's, that's where mankind is. That's where you and I were before we became Christians. In Romans chapter three, if we go a little bit further, Romans says, and he's quoting from a number of Old Testament uh, passages, particularly the Psalms. And he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. All have turned away. They've become worthless. There is no one, no one who does good, not even one. He goes on further to say, there's not a single one who searches after God. You and I, before we came to know Christ, your neighbors, your friends, even members of your family, maybe who don't know Christ, are described in this verse. They're not righteous. They're not righteous. They don't understand. They never seek God. They never do good. They never do what is good in God's eyes. And he sums it all up in the 23rd verse of that chapter 3. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he says further, then the wages of this sin is death. So that's where we are as people. That's where we are. But we, God is a God of grace. And that's what the second part of uh, 6.23 says. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God is a God of grace. And from the billions and billions over the years who have gone to their death not knowing Christ, not because they didn't realize he was there, but because they refused to acknowledge him, God has chosen out of those billions, millions, hundreds of millions of others he has chosen. You and I are amongst them. And he has chosen them out of his goodness and out of his grace to give them something special. God has never under any obligation to choose a single one of us because we're all sinners. We've all turned our back on him, every one. 
but out of his goodness and his grace and his mercy, he does it. He chooses some. And when I say some, of course, I mean many, many millions. Sometimes we get the idea that the church is just a few people. No, the church is not a few people. They reckon the church in China today may be over a hundred million strong. There are millions and millions of men, women, and young people who show clearly in their lives that God has chosen them. And that's all because of God's grace. So the next question then is, when does God choose his people? You know, if you were, if somebody were to ask you, when did you become a Christian? One of the things you could say to them was, well, I became a Christian before the world was even made. And that answer would be correct. God chose you as his child before he even created anything. That would start a good discussion, wouldn't it? If you said to him, well, I became a Christian before the world was made. Imagine the discussion you could have. But this is absolutely true. God chose us to be his people long before anyone else even thought of us, long before space and time were created. If we look at the people of Israel, God's chosen people, we're talking here, as you'll see in, in, the, in Romans, again, it's Paul, and he's talking about the children of Isaac. Remember, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And he says this, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before these sons were born, before they had done anything or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as is it written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Before those two boys, those twins, before they were even born, long before they had a chance to do anything good or anything bad, God chose Jacob and at that point in time rejected Esau. When it says Esau I hated, it's not, it's not talking about hatred the way we hate. He's simply saying I chose Jacob to be the one through whom my Messiah would come. That would be the holy line. That's the chosen line that I would follow. From Jacob would come the son, the 12 sons from Joseph and then from Judah. Judah would come the King David and so on and so on and so on. And eventually we'd have the Messiah Christ that chosen line, the line was rented. And, and Paul goes on to say in that same passage, he says this, he says, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. And that's very strong language when Paul says, says that. We, don't, we can't really say it. He says, never, 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 never. It's, a re it's a repeated over and over again. Not at all. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So the answer, why did God choose us? It was God's mercy. It was God's pleasure to choose us. He didn't choose all of us, but he chose us out of his pleasure. And if the, the passage that we can look at further if you look at Ephesians chapter chapter one, uh, I don't know whether you were listening into all of the sermons during the September October period when the different folk from Ashford were preaching. Ephesians chapter one is one of the most fascinating chapters in the Bible, and I'm just going to read parts of it. For he chose us. This is now Paul talking. Remember, Paul is saying of God, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. See that. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. 
to be holy and blameless sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. And down to verse nine, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything within the purpose of his will. I've met Christians, and I've met some fairly recently, who say, oh, I just don't believe in predestination. I just don't believe that God chooses us. And I'm afraid I have to hang my head there because I don't know what to say to a person like that. All I can say is the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches very, very clearly that God chooses us long before we were even thought of by anybody else. We can't pick and choose what parts of the Bible we choose to believe and not believe. We don't have that privilege. The Bible teaches that we've been chosen way, way before. And people who think that predestination is unfair or fatalistic or deterministic or unjust, well, they don't understand God and they don't understand predestination. Look what Jesus himself says. He says in John 15, this is that lovely passage where he's just been talking about Jesus being the, the vine and we're the branches. You know that passage? Jesus says to his disciples, he's talking to them, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you my friends as everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Listen to this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to us? We are his disciples. We didn't choose him. It may have felt like it. It may have felt that we were choosing him, but actually happened. He chose us and we responded to that. So let's have a look at the fourth question. We're almost done. So what happens when God chooses us? Well, here we go back again to the book of Romans, where Paul is laying out this argument. Chapter eight of Romans is that wonderful chapter that ends in those notes of tremendous victory. And he lays out an order, and it starts off with God foreknowing us. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Now, foreknowledge, it simply means that God knows everything long before anything happens. He knows it before it happens. And this knowledge of God is a certain knowledge. God can't know something, and then something else happens. By the very fact of God knowing something actually determines that that thing will happen. God can't be caught unawares in any way. You can't fool the foreknowledge of God. You can't surprise God by anything you do, any action you take. God is never caught unawares. So in the very beginning, the beginning of the beginning, before the beginning, God knew us. He knew us by name. He knew us before we were born in others' womb, as the psalmist says. God knew us. And because he knew us, we were going to be, and we were going to exist, and we were going to be chosen. And then it says, those he foreknew, he predestined. This is, in a sense, putting his seal on the foreknowledge. Predestined means what he knows, he now decrees. He writes it into his plan, and he brings the plan being. 
God determines for beforehand what is going to happen. And this happens in, in terms of our choosing. Now, there are some who say this. They say, well, maybe it's like this. You see, God foreknew. He looked far into the future and he saw Rob G. And he saw Rob G was going to choose God, so he predestined Rob G. That's not how it works. That's not what Paul said when he's writing about Rebecca's son, Jacob and Esau. He chose Jacob before Jacob was even born. He didn't look into the future and see what Jacob would do. Good job he didn't because Jacob was a bit of a nasty fellow. He was deceitful. No, God foreknows and then he predestines according to the pleasure of his will. And what does he do once that has happened? Well, then next thing comes the calling. Now, this calling is what we call the effectual calling, the calling that works. This is when God begins to do a work in your heart. Now we're coming into the present tense. The foreknowledge and the predestining, that goes way back into eternity. Now we're where we are now. What happens when God elects somebody, the next thing he does when that person is born and when that person begins to live his life, he calls them. He calls them. And this is when he begins to work in our hearts. This is when he takes that person that he has foreknown and the person he has predestined, and he begins to soften their hearts. The Bible says he takes away our heart of stone and places our heart of flesh. He softens our hearts. He overrides our rebelliousness and our sinful nature. And he says, come to me. He calls us, come to me. This is the moment of our new birth. This is the moment of our regeneration. God effectually, effectively calls us. He calls us, he softens our hearts and he makes us his. And then it says those he called, he justified. This is where God says, all right, now that, now that you're born again, I'm going to give you a legal standing. I'm going to declare you to all of history, to all of eternity, I'm going to declare that you are righteous. On the grounds of what Jesus Christ, my son, did on the cross, I declare you righteous. Nobody can ever point a finger at you again. You are righteous in Christ. That's our justification. And those he justified, he also glorified. And that simply means that from the moment we are justified, from the moment we are born again, a process begins called glorification. It starts off with what we call sanctification, where God works in our hearts and he helps us to become more holy, more Christian in our, life, in our lives, more like Christ until the time comes when he takes us to be with him. And when he takes us to be with him, we are glorified fully. We become his children 100%. We look like him. We feel like him. We sense we get this new body, this new life. That's our glorification. One thing before I leave this question, then I'll close. It, you look at this and you say, but what, what do I play in this? What about me? What, don't I have to do anything? The answer is not much. There's not much that we do. Our choice is not the determining factor. God doesn't wait in the sidelines for us to turn to him in faith. All we do is when God calls us, when he begins to soften our hearts, we respond to that in faith and in repentance. He softens our hearts so that we see ourselves as sinners for the first time. We confess our sin to him and then we believe in him. 
we make the choice, the real, real choice to believe in him. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says this, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Grace, nothing else, grace. But how? Through faith. But that faith is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. So even the believing, even the faith we have doesn't come from inside. That's given to us by God as well. So we are saved entirely by the grace of God. What we do is respond in repentance and faith. But we have to consider the final question. What about God appears not to have chosen? The answer is simply that God allows them to go the way they have chosen. We read it in Romans chapter 1. I've got it there for you again. For those who want to go their own way and not acknowledge God, God says to them, go then your own way. God lets them do what they always wanted to do and go their own way. We mustn't think they're going to be people getting to the ends of their life and saying, oh, I wish I was one of the elect, but I'm obviously not one of the elect. I'm going to go to hell and I had no choice because I'm, I'm not one of God's elect. That will never happen. Those who God rejects, those who, who, who reject God, will never call on him. Remember what Paul said, there is none that seeketh after God. None of us do that. Just as there's not going to be anybody who's going to say, well, I don't, I don't want to be one of the chosen. I'd rather not be one of the chosen. That's not going to happen either. That's not the way it works. And mostly, and I want to finish with this, God's not being unfair. We daren't accuse God of unfairness. As much as we might like to, we daren't do that. He can only be praised and worshipped for his grace, his mercy in choosing us. I don't know whether you've seen anything of the presidential election in America. It's been a song and dance, hasn't it? One of the things a president can do at the end of his term is pardon people. And uh, some presidents have used that. The latest president has misused it or abused. But you know that even in British law, there's something called the royal prerogative of mercy. The royal prerogative of mercy shortened the royal pardon. There are times when the queen or the king, whoever's ruling, can pardon somebody or a number of people. She can just decide, I'm, I'm going to pardon this person. It was originally used by monarchs to take away the death penalty in those days and that commute that to life. But in the last years, the queen has pardoned certain people. But say there are 100,000 people in jail in Britain today and she chooses to pardon two. Can we then accuse the queen of being unfair because she only pardoned two and not the other 999,998? Is the queen being unfair because she didn't pardon all of those other people who quite justly are serving prison for what they've done? Of course not. All we can do is praise her for showing mercy to some. This is a hard doctrine. I wish I had five hours, let alone five or ten minutes. Let me just finish by saying, whenever I give a talk like this, there are normally three or four different types of people in the room. There are those to whom this message is an absolute joy, and they rejoice. And I rejoice in this because I know I'm one of God's chosen, and I worship him for choosing me when I think, boy, he could have chosen better. He could have done far better. He chose me. Why did he choose me? I don't know, but I rejoice. It's a wonderfully, wonderfully comforting doctrine. 
And then the second kind of person are those who are a little bit unsure of their faith. They think they're Christians, but they're not quite sure. And then this doctrine becomes very dark, dangerous to them because they're not sure. Am I one of the elect? Am I not one of the elect? Am I chosen? Am I not chosen? And if you're one of those this evening, then you please, please, please go and speak to a more senior Christian and get some wisdom from them to how to be assured of your salvation. And then, of course, there are those who are not Christians at all, to whom this doctrine is either sheer idiocy or it's something that scares the hell out of them, literally. I wish it would scare the hell out of them. And if you're one of those, and I don't know, I, I, I don't know who's chosen besides myself, that if, you, if you've got the sense tonight that you're on the outside of all of this, then once again, you need to think very carefully. God is speaking to you every time you find yourself within range of the Bible being taught. God is speaking. God may well be calling to you, and it's time to respond. So I leave those few thoughts with you. Please uh, send me your questions anytime. Uh, give me a buzz sometime. I'd love to chat to you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you most of all that from time immemorial before time was even thought of, you chose us to be your children. Lord, that is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. We pray for those who don't know Jesus and we witness and we obey the Great Commission and we go out and we share our faith with them because you commanded us to do so. And we believe that that's the way that you call people through our witness, so we do pray that you would speak to our hearts about those people in our lives who do not know you, that we might be part of that calling to their lives. So bless us, we pray, and bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.